Chuck Kinney. Welcome to the third section of a seven-part series of one of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. We are calling the third part of this study the judgment of Christ to help bring focus to the foundation of chapters 4 through 7. Along the way, I'll ask a series of checkpoint questions. The checkpoint questions will hold us to the gospel that is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. As we touch on the four chapters, we'll use checkpoint questions to look at Paul's Christology by asking, Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? What did the things Jesus did mean? How do we apply this? Reading through the first six chapters of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, we see quite a dynamic of division occurring within the leadership and congregation of the church in Corinth. And it is very understandable why Paul was so alarmed at what was being reported to him. The division coming about was due to the pride and arrogance of the spiritually immature church there. We'll remember from chapter 3, Paul addressing the different factions within the church. One says they'll follow Paul, another says Apollo, another Cephas, and others Christ. Within his writing at the end of chapter 3, Paul graciously ends the noise of foolish worldly wisdom and the judgment of who would follow who by simply acknowledging that the church is of Christ and Christ is of God. Christ is Lord. Paul sets an example of his position and brothers with him in Christ at the very beginning of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul not only uses the word servant, living in service of, to Christ, but also the word steward. A steward refers to those who oversee or manage a household. Certainly on a smaller scale, an example of a steward could be like that of the master of the feast at the wedding in Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. The master was trusted to oversee and manage the wedding. Jesus instructed servants to give the master some of the water that was turned into wine, and the master said it was very good. But Paul here writes of his position as a steward on the grandest scale, being a steward of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are mysteries because they are revealed only by the Spirit. And what is being revealed and reported to Paul as a steward of God's house, as pertaining to his purpose, in writing this letter to the church in Corinth is not very good. As to stewards, Paul writes, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is a loud statement because it is the targeted point of a believer serving Christ. A steward must be found faithful. It doesn't matter to Paul that he be judged by a human court or literally translated one human day. What he is alluding to is the day of Christ the day of judgment upon Jesus' return. 
Owen Ferris's deeds are good, they're rights, but that does not make me innocent. This because it is the Lord who judges the deep purposes and motives of man's heart on the day of his coming. Chapter 4, verse 5 reads, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Only the Lord knows the true condition and depths of man's heart. By writing, I do not even judge myself, back in verse 3, Paul is inferring that neither he nor any man is capable of objectively judging himself to the depths God knows. So we come to our first checkpoint question. Who is Jesus? Within the context of scripture here, we can definitively answer, Jesus Christ is judge. Through Jesus' sacrificial atonement for man's sin, he bore man's judgment on himself once and for all. Therefore, Christ has all authority to judge. Paul lists the difficulties that him and others with him suffer as faithful servants to Christ. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. Paul is bringing to the attention of the spiritually immature believer in Corinth that through his suffering and with humility, he remains faithfully following Christ. As he continues in his writing, he suggests and implies it is not to shame the church he writes of his conditions, but to rebuke the prideful mentality the members had developed. Paul's intention was to humble them. In verse 14, Paul warns them as well. The Greek word here used for warn means to reprimand, but in a sense like that of a concerned parent for their child. Paul had planted the church in Corinth some five years earlier. He had spent 18 months living and teaching them the gospel message as a loving father would to his children. In verses 15 and 16, he writes, For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. One knows an infant mimic their parents. Like in earlier chapters, Paul points out the infant-like spirituality of the church. Though in verse 16, Paul provided the plan of action to mature spiritually. Imitate me. Clearly, Paul can be acknowledged as a church in Corinth's fatherly, Christ-like influencer. To prepare us for chapter 5, we'll first take a moment to note the self-indulgent atmosphere of the cosmopolitan city of Corinth and likely why Paul had planted the church there. Corinth was a well-traveled seaport. There were many different races, religions, and value systems among its population. There were several religious beliefs, values, and cultures traveling through Corinth as well. Materialism and immorality were common. It was a perfect place to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ because it was so well-traveled. Corinth was predominantly known 
for the temple worship of the god Aphrodite and its thousand temple prostitutes. Therefore, Paul knew Corinth was also the optimum place to share the saving grace of Jesus Christ. One knows a loving father must discipline his children as well. Moving into chapter 5, you read of Paul immediately calling out this evil sexual immorality reported to him that was being permitted within the church. The sexual immorality, he writes, of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. Paul uses the term, a man has his father's wife, a saying meaning a son sexually involved with his stepmother, Leviticus 18.8. Paul was outraged that with the practice of this man, that he still be allowed to remain in fellowship. The leadership of the church in Corinth had become blind to what was being allowed within the congregation, due in large part to their prideful mindset. Paul is not only appalled because of the immoral act itself and that they had not put this man out of their fellowship, but also because they were proud of it. We'll need to reference the story of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 because it becomes the backdrop to Paul's writing. Remembering the festival of the Passover lamb, all leaven was to be removed from among the houses of the Israelites. Anyone who had eaten food with leaven in it while the festival was celebrated will be cut off from Israel. Paul draws from the well-known celebration of the Jews to make his point. The leaven he refers to, though, metaphorically represents the wickedness of sexual immorality. Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. No leaven, no wickedness of sexual immorality is allowed among God's people, not even a little leaven of malice and evil that is sexual immorality. The believer is a new creation in Christ. As Paul writes, a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Our next checkpoint question is, what did Jesus do? Jesus became the eternal, sacrificial Passover lamb. Death has passed over the believer in Christ eternally. Therefore, the believer no longer live in sin, but set free to live for Christ with sincerity and truth. In verse 9 of chapter 5, we read that Paul had written the church in Corinth before writing this letter of 1 Corinthians. Sexual immorality regarding the church in Corinth was causing an ongoing division amongst the church there. It was not a one-time offense of the man committing adultery with his father's wife. There was a misunderstanding regarding associating with the sexually immoral from Paul's initial letter he had written. The church had inferred from his initial writing that Paul was referring to not associating with the sexually immoral outside of the church or non-believer. Paul uses the word brother in verse 11, referring to those in the church. In verse 13, 
Paul further clarifies by quoting a passage used six times in the book of Deuteronomy, expel the wicked man from among you. There is good reason why Paul was so adamant in his writing to remove the immoral man from among the church's fellowship. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If one can continue to indulge in sin, others among the body of the church could be persuaded to follow in the same way by Sim's allowance among them. As well, if this individual living in sin could remain in fellowship and not be disciplined by expelling them from the church, they would not grow by seeking repentance to overcome the sin that had enslaved them. Therefore, they would certainly not inherit the kingdom of God. In chapter 6, we see Paul writes of the division of the church regarding the carnal way of civil trials, fellow believers taking one another to court rather than trying to settle their differences among themselves. The Corinthians were going to trial against one another and having an unrighteous judge, a non-believer, resolve their, their disputes. Verses 7 and 8 read, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. With the believers taking fellow Christians to court, it was hurting not only the condition of the hearts of the congregation, but also the social standing of the church in Corinth. The dysfunction of the church leadership was evident. Paul continues in verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is writing about the transformation that should take place once someone chooses to follow Christ. One should no longer continue in their former simple ways of life. He writes, Do not be deceived. When translated, the word deceived here means to wander, hence in a moral sense. After listing the immoral way that will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul leads into the powerful testimony of Christ's forgiveness and salvation. Our checkpoint question is, what do the things Jesus did mean? Looking at scripture in verse 11, we answer this with, You were washed. God cleansed the believers in Christ from their sin. You were sanctified. The believer in Christ is set apart, made holy, free from sin, purified. You were justified. A believer in Jesus Christ is acquitted of their wrongdoing and accepted as righteous in God's sight. All in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In verse 12 through 20, Paul continues to address and discredit the Corinthian believers' distorted understanding of freedom in Christ 
used to validate their visitations of prostitutes. The phrase, all things are lawful for me, in verse 12, was a slogan that Corinthians used as an excuse to commit the degrading of the body through sexual immorality. Paul indicates it is not beneficial for people to elevate their desires above God's. At the end of verse 12, Paul alludes to the understanding that whatever one would elevate above God's desire for them will master them. Today we call this an addiction. In verse 13, Paul quotes a euphemism from the ancient world, food for the stomach and stomach for food. The logic to the metaphor is that the stomach's appetite is meant to be satisfied with food. So the body is meant to be satisfied through sexual activity. But sexual immorality is evil. Sexual immorality is so evil because it works completely contrary to the very nature and purpose of the human body. There are other sins that affect the body, but sexual immorality is unique in its wickedness. The root of sexual immorality and its cravings initiate entirely from within. Sexual immorality forces the fulfillment of one's personal lust, marking the highest level of self-violation. Verses 19 and 20 read, Do you not know that your bodies, a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The nature of Paul's rhetorical question suggests that the Corinthian believers already knew the truth in in his asking. The body Paul is referring to, of course, is the body of each believer. In In the same singular form, he uses the word temple. In the time of Paul's writing here, it was known and understood that masters would purchase slaves from other masters, which allotted a change in ownership of the slave. With this understanding as a backdrop to Paul's writing, he is reminding the Corinthians that God had purchased them from the slavery of sin and death through the sacrificial death of Christ. A believer in Christ no longer belongs to themselves, but the God. Chapter 7 begins Paul's reply to the church in Corinth and their questions regarding marriage, liberty, church order, and spiritual gifts. Paul writes of the relationship of marriage and the duties that entail in chapter 7. We'll set our attention solely on the most important relationship of a believer, that being with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The believer's marriage relationship to Christ is where all of life is birthed and branches out from. To conclude what's been touched on in this third section, we'll return to our checkpoint questions that led us to seeking in Scripture the truth and foundation of the church that is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ is the judge. Through Jesus' sacrificial atonement for man's sin, he bore man's judgment on himself once and for all. Therefore, Christ has all authority to judge. What did Jesus do? Jesus became the eternal sacrificial Passover lamb, 
death has passed over the believer in Christ eternally. Therefore, the believer no longer live in sin, but has been set free to live for Christ with sincerity and truth. What do the things Jesus did mean? For those who believe in Christ, God has washed our sin away. God has set us apart, made us holy. We are free from sin, purified. We have been acquitted of our wrongdoing and accepted as righteous before God. How do we apply this? By living our lives out with our lives set free from sin and following Christ as Christ-like influencers, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us continue to walk and know who with. In Jesus' name, amen.